Hello guys, today we are going to be stepping a bit away from the paranormal, and instead we will be focusing on a much less intrusive but more obvious mirror reflection to our subconsciousness. Ancient mythology, namely Greek mythology, the one that formed the basis of modern society, or rather, of white imperial western bastards. But as such, it can be viewed as a stage play acting out the societal issues of white imperial bastards that we have obviously been trying to piece together for millennia now. Heroes as personifications of our manufactured egos and ideals, and monsters as the manifestations of our unacknowledged shadow selves. A lot of these monsters being women, the feminine, the natural force mankind has been trying to dominate for millennia. Whether these female monsters are born or created through trauma, we have constantly been demonizing and trying to kill them via these stories and myths throughout history. A sad reflection of society's inherent misogyny. But in recent years we have started subverting this trope, turning the tables on all those manly heroes and embracing that which our egos are most afraid of, the monstrous feminine. Okay, now I started recording because we have opened up so many, you know, topics here and we should talk about this on here. So with me today, listeners, is Aaron from Myth Monsters Podcast. Hello. Hello, Aaron. I asked you like a long time ago, would you appear on my podcast and you just do not look at the <laughs> instant messages. <laughs> I'm terrible. I'm so sorry. I am just <laughs> terrible at checking my social media, to be completely honest. And also, Instagram has two inboxes and I've, I didn't realize that was a thing. One of them sends notifications and one of them doesn't so oh, well i'm glad i'm glad you turned around and was like yeah of course i'm gonna appear on your show and then we started thinking what are we going to talk about and i realized throughout your podcast that your favorite mythology is greek mythology yes it is my favorite mythology as well though i am not as well versed in it as you are i will get into that but i think greek mythology is essentially the the mythology that laid the foundation for all modern culture as as we perceive it like white imperial bastards <laughs> <laughs> well yeah exactly <laughs> oh yeah i was asking like uh, are we maybe we should talk about let's say how the victorians appropriated greek mythology and made it a whole thing why it's so prevalent in academia but then i'm like you know what let's just talk about what these greek myths used to mean what they mean to us now how they are utilized in pop culture especially video games because you really love those video games <laughs> I do indeed. I do indeed. Absolutely oh, yeah. love them. And uh, just like why why the monsters are not the heroes. So can you explain to the listeners the concept behind your show and what inspired you to make a show about monsters? Yeah, so I very much grew up on Greek myths. Uh, it was something that was, my parents are English and German, so no, no Greek heritage anywhere, but they ended up reading me Greek mythology stories to go to bed. Obviously very, uh, very tame ones in retrospect. It really 
bore a interest in me from a really early age in generally the monsters, especially like hybrid monsters. I always thought they were quite interesting, but also in these stories that really told a moral perspective on ancient beliefs and ancient customs, as well as things that we see reflected in modern day everything, really, in the way that our cultures, especially as Europeans, is moulded by the Greeks and the Romans, but also by how much it's infiltrated our modern media. So I picked up the podcast idea when I was in lockdown. Basically, I am very creative. I very much love a creative outlet and found myself really struggling uh, in a really corporate job whilst lockdown was going on and thought I need something to just completely output all of my creativity into. And yeah, the podcast kind of came along and there are loads of mythology podcasts, as you know, like they're all over the place. Same with cryptozoology and, you know, the paranormal. Everyone's got a podcast on it. It's a very stretched out genre, just like true crime. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was very much, very much trying to find a little niche within it and found that totally there are mythology monsters podcasts and like there are some really big ones as well, like ones that are really popular. Oh yeah, I think there's mythic monsters from yeah. Paracast Network. Yes, and that one's massive. And actually, I, I really love that podcast. <laughs> um, and I'm a massive fan of it, but I found uh, I'm just not, I just don't have the time to sit there for a half an hour, 45 minutes a lot of the time to sit and listen to a podcast, especially during lockdown. I was finding that actually I'd rather sit with a video game or TV on whilst doing something else. Like I'm the podcast wasn't really the big puller for me. So I was like, how can I find something within this niche that is also something that I would listen to and what I'm searching for? And so I just thought I'll fill it myself and do these 15 minute ones and uh, yeah, fill that little little gap on bite sized ones so that people like me who have no attention span whatsoever can kind of get all of that content out and actually get some recommendations on where to continue that interest as well, which I found a lot of these uh, monster podcasts were kind of not lacking in that's very unkind to say but uh <laughs> Uh, definitely not as brashly recommending or talking about them as much as I do. But yeah, so that's that's kind of why it started and why I have the interest in it. It's always been something I've absolutely adored. And monsters, I mean, it's a reflection of society, always a monster, right? It's how we perceive people and how we can, well, demonize people into certain shapes and figures. I mean, if we look at something as easy as, say, a Gorgon, you know, mm -hmm. we look at Medusa, we've got a seductress figure almost becoming this evil figure that I mean turns men into stone predominantly and it's it's very much a reflection of the strong women especially depending on what Medusa myth you go down as well you've got this really strong woman who is then seducted or being a seductress herself and being punished for that and it's it is that reflection of society and even with the sexual assault version of that myth there is still a reflection there of ancient Greek society if not current society too okay I like like that you went there because your first episode was on the Gorgons and I thought well there is probably a reason to that why you picked that as the first topic why it maybe inspired you as you said the monsters are reflections of ourselves I like to think of it as the monster is our shadow self the one mm. that we do not acknowledge and the yeah. hero is our fake imaginary ego self you know yes yeah. this, this uh, fake persona that we put up in public so it's constantly these stories of our ego battle with our true shadow self. 
Exactly, exactly. And and society's shadows and egos too, you know, if in the massive broad sense, it's this whole society we can look at and even just separate civilizations, we can look at it that way and be like, oh, well, this is this is definitely the good versus evil in this entire ancient civilization and what really happened. So when we're at the topic of Medusa, there are many different origins to her story, but the one that probably resonates with us the most, especially nowadays is the more Roman version of the myth where she was sexually assaulted by Poseidon or Mm. Neptune in Roman uh, mythology. And after being assaulted, she was for some reason punished by Athena, who was jealous of her, who gave her the snake hair and the ability to to make men into stone with her gaze. And then she secluded herself. Like she does not want anything to do with the outer world. And she just went off into a cave somewhere to live her own life. Yeah. And then yeah. Athena, the asshole, sends <laughs> sends Perseus to kill her and gives him, you know, a reflective shield. Yeah. All seems very <laughs> counterproductive, doesn't it? <laughs> But it's it's uh, this idea of um, men dominating women. The the woman is personified as a monster. But in Greek mythology, from what I've seen, it is always let's say the slave woman or the uh, lower woman, or in most of these cases, the woman who was sexually assaulted, the the mm. victim who is transformed into a monster by a goddess. Yeah. So what why do you think that is a prevalent motif? Oh well, I th- I think it's easy. Firstly, I think it's it's certainly an old version of classicism Mm-hmm. Maybe uh, <laughs> I can't can't think of what the actual word is, or if I'm pronouncing it correctly at all. But I guess it's it's all to do with that social ranking system and how prevalent that was within these ancient societies. I mean, a lot of the time, this myth is very oddly mixed together. I mean, in the in the original Greek tale, we have Gorgons were born. They were three sisters, all born Gorgonized at birth. There was mm-hmm. no there was no deviation through Poseidon or Athena or anything. It was very much Perseus was given. Given the task to go and kill her because her head was kind of handy, to be completely frank. That's pretty much the end of the story. And out of her neck spawns a, a one-eyed giant and Pegasus, who we all Pegasus, know and love yeah. from Disney's Hercules. But the Roman myth, of course, doesn't really talk about that very much because it believes that she was created rather than born herself. And actually, there's no indication of her two sisters within the Greek myth at all. It's just Medusa on her own. She is a solo organized creature. And I I, I do think it's that idea of this lowly, this lowly priestess of Athena, and it's of course within society in ancient civilization times, priestesses surely do have this a little bit upper stature than you know a peasant on the street would, totally, as they are a recognised member of the house of a god. However, they are still peasants at the end of the day; they're not royalty by any standards, and especially in regards to the representation of women and portrayal of women within this time, we know that it was very much a woman runs the household they wouldn't usually have a job they would be married off all of this kind of stuff very traditional ancient civilization up to what the victorian times over here in the uk at least to be fair even that comes across now it's very much an expectation of women run the household whatever but it's very much with medusa it's that idea that she is still that peasant girl who's got a little bit of power a little bit of responsibility and stature within society and a god 
god, a male god especially, and one such as Poseidon, one of the top three rulers of the whole world, realistically, taking what he wants from something that realistically belongs to Athena. And it yeah. is that, it's the idea of who owns who, and does Medusa have any autonomy in this story at all, until she gets banished or goes off on her own? Or is she always that possession of either Athena being her priestess, or Poseidon being her abductor and her rapist, realistically? So so I, I think of Medusa now through the context of this story, she is somewhat of a female version of a whipping boy. Yeah. Because this uh, Athena can be seen as, you know, the woman that runs the house, the mother, the queen, you know, the high status lady. Yeah. But always there needs to be some form of male on female violence going on. And for her to be, let's say, safe and for Poseidon to express his, let's say, dominance over Athena, he's not going to do something to Athena, but rather to Medusa, who is the, the whipping lady. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. It's it's a weird scapegoat almost. Oh yeah. So <laughs> all of this mythology is rooted in uh, male on female aggression, man. The more I look at it. So yeah. I, I want to go into another monster that is your favorite, the harpies. Yes. Because oh, we, we still see the same theme here. The harpies used to be handmaidens of Persephone. Yeah. And Persephone's mother was Demeter or Demeter. I don't know how it's pronounced. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a it's an ongoing debate i think oh, yeah. i i say demeter but i know a lot of people say demeter uh-huh <laughs> but i'm not greek so <laughs> when persephone was kidnapped by hades demeter sent the handmaidens to go search for persephone they failed and in order to punish them they were turned into harpies by demeter yeah that is correct and there are a lot of layers there because even the persephone hades myth is you know male on female aggression but then it's cascade into this whole butterfly effect where now it's female on female aggression with <laughs> Demeter and the handmaidens being turned into harpies. Yeah, yeah. And misplaced aggression as well with Demeter and the harpies, I think, as well. It's what always baffles me with this story with the creation of the harpies is that actually if she'd have temporarily transformed them into that to find Persephone, they probably would have had more luck. <laughs> <laughs> potentially they could have they could have flown somewhere at least checked the skies a little bit more efficiently or you know they had weapons realistically with their talons and their claws so they potentially could have made it into the underworld to even maybe get a glimpse of her or talk to these other creatures on the way that could potentially say yeah she's down there so i i always feel like this story is so weird like out of any of them it seems so counterproductive if Demeter had just done that beforehand and then be like oh thanks I'll change you back now <laughs> I've never <laughs> understood it but yeah I think uh, harpies are my favorite I think they I love them mainly because when I was growing up and you might have this too but I loved Yu-Gi-Oh I thought it was fantastic oh yeah I did too Oh, and May, who had the harpy deck, I absolutely adored her. She was just so cool. I got really into Yu-Gi-Oh as a kid and had the full harpy deck and I was so proud of myself. Um, <laughs> but, um, and since then, I've always found them really fascinating. And this idea that actually this, this monster specifically is still something that we use today as an insult towards women, I think is so interesting. It's so awful, obviously, but so interesting. Like if I, obviously I am a, 
massive mythology nerd and I I do love it. If someone called me a harpy, I'd be really offended. I think that's such a horrible thing to say to someone. What is the connotation behind the word harpy? Well, it's usually to do with like someone who's like bird-like. So with Tilkin screeching. So you're usually talking about someone who's like kind of loud and persistently annoying or shrill. And I think those are things that are very often put in the same car as women as an insult. It's, oh, you're, you know, you're a bit loud or you're a bit shrill love like mm-hmm. calm down and that's it like i'm i'm not particularly shrill although that i may live to regret saying that but if someone called me a harpy i'd be like that's so rude that's such a rude thing to say to someone yeah i i can see it like as an attempt to kind of reduce women to let's say white noise that you should not yeah. listen to yeah. Exactly. And it's even like um, Banshee is another one, right? Where mm-hmm. sometimes you'll hear that, oh, she's screaming like a Banshee. And it's like, again, this is this is all connotations to do with the fact that we are loud, quote unquote. But actually, like, Banshee's a, a really sad piece of mythology, like, outside of all of this. They're so, it's so sad. And to demean someone to that, I think is just inherently really cruel. But again, I feel like, you know, if you called my sister a harpy, I don't think she'd get it. But like, for me, someone called me a harpy i'd be like that that's really rude like you definitely shouldn't call me that For the listeners, because this story of Persephone and Hades is kind of yes. an overarching motif of my show, and maybe listeners would not be aware of this because I always talk about the food taboo, especially yeah. related to fae folklore, and this originated in that story of Persephone and Hades, and the food taboo is essentially if you go to the underworld or the fae realm or whatever beyond the veil, you should not eat anything or you will be trapped there forever. Mm. And I think the Persephone story is very interesting because she was originally the goddess of spring and then became the queen of the underworld so it's like this spring is a transitional period between death and life and the the cycle of life and death very very interesting motif there so can you maybe tldr (laughs) (laughs) tell us about the story of persephone yeah so tldr definitely because it is a long one oh yeah um she's goddess of spring daughter of demeter goddess of the harvest who is considered an interchangeable one of the 12 pantheon gods of Greek mythology so she's very much switched out with Hestia sometimes Demeter but I count her as one of the big ones basically Persephone was out picking flowers Hades spotted her needed a wife pretty much and abducted her and in some some scenarios some people say it's the original some people don't he also sexually assaults her keeps her in the underworld and basically offers her a pomegranate which is said to be the only fruit that will ever grow in the underworld I love pomegranates just as a side note I really love them Okay, but there, there's another connotation there. So we know that Hades was a womanizer and he tried to romance a lot of these goddesses back in the yeah. day. But also the pomegranate is known to be an aphrodisiac for yes. male potency. Yes, it's all. it also looks slightly like a vagina. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to say it. Yeah. <laughs> um, it. You know, it's like oranges and citrus fruits very much have that. I don't know what the opposite of phallic is, but the opposite of phallic kind of representation within uh, just opening one up really so it, d- it does say a lot about definitely the sexual intention there as well as sexual dominance definitely and yeah the pomegranate is is a massive symbol within greek mythology for control and also that idea 
idea of sexuality, definitely. And that interweaves really nicely with Persephone and Hades' story, especially if you go down the perception of the sexual assault version as well. So he actually told Persephone that she's free to go, but she should like take a seat of the pomegranates. Yeah, and she ends up taking six, and each month basically is represented by one of those seeds. So she then is locked in the underworld for those six months a year, which is the obviously the way the Greeks tell the seasons. So as soon as Persephone goes into the underworld, Demeter, who is the goddess of the harvest, mourns her missing and turns, well, stops the harvest. So she cr- mm-hmm. turns it to winter. We get the cold, we get unharvestable fields and stuff like that. We go through droughts, droughts, not droughts, freezes, stuff like that. And when Persephone comes back in the late spring, it's when everything starts to come back into fruition. So as you said, very much a telltale of life and death, which is so poetic when you put it alongside the fact that she is now the queen of the underworld and represents death in herself as well now, as well as that springtime. She she is the embodiment of two very opposite polarizing forces. Yeah, she is. She's a very fascinating character and there's definitely a debate whether she wants to be there or not. I think, to be honest, it's not really covered very much in the myths whether she actually wants to be there or not. And I think, you know, stuff like uh, Law Olympus, that comic series, uh, very much mm-hmm. romanticizes their relationship and even Percy Jackson, there's like a little expert in there with Persephone and Hades and it seems to be resentful and pretty pretty annoyed that she's down there. Or there's Hades Town, the musical, where they're trying to pair their relationship. There's loads of media around Persephone and Hades because it is such a really untouched story past that first bit of the myth, the capture of her and the the ongoing season change. We don't actually know how Persephone ever really took to it. That's very interesting. I I find it very fascinating also that there are these mythological parallels between cultures like in Celtic folklore, you have these same motifs going on, but related to fairy folklore. Mm. Uh, to explain the harvest, to explain the seasons if you go to a fairy and eat fairy food you are stuck there forever it's interesting because it shows that we are all connected as human beings you know just like the fact that pyramids popped up all over the world on different continents <laughs> in cultures that do not communicate with each other usually people want to say oh it's aliens no it's yeah. because we are all humans and we all <laughs> share the same symbologies exactly i mean even something like the phoenix right is mm-hmm. Something that is inherently Greek, but we've we know it very well across the whole of Europe and even the US, where you know obviously that country wasn't brought in to any Western influence until the 1700s when the British invaded. And then we've also got in the East they have the Fenhuang, which is the Chinese version of mm-hmm. the Phoenix, which was created completely independently of any Western influence. So we've got these two practically identical birds that were created in completely different times and have absolutely no influence on each other but are practically identical and I find that so amazing and even like the Sphinx is considered a, an Egyptian myth monster it's not it's Greek it originates oh, yeah. in the Greeks and we all know the riddle of the Sphinx and it's a <laughs> Greek origin exactly and although there is a Sphinx in Cairo it very much people do think it's an Egyptian monster but of course they're not particularly far away I think 
think they're about a sea away from Egypt to, to Greece. They're not completely separate from each other. And I imagine they probably did have some kind of communication or interactions with each other. Something like the Fenhuang, I find absolutely crazy because we just had no contact between these two civilizations and they created practically an identical monster, which is just crazy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Are the Harpies your favorite Greek myth monster? I, I I think they probably are. The Gorgons are definitely close. It does always tend to dabble around usually a female-based monster, to be mm-hmm. honest. And that, you know, I'm, I'm female, it makes complete sense. But I think it's that idea of the perception of women back in these days was like this idea of weakness and the idea of taking something. And, you know, with like Gorgons and Harpies, both of them, it was like a curse, realistically. It was yeah. this curse that strengthened them and embodied them into the monsters that we know and made them really strong. And I really love that. It's almost like a redemption arc and being like, oh, this, like, this woman is really badass. Like, I love this. Like, go, go gals. That's I think that's very much like any monster that's kind of like that I'm most into out of all of them. But I think Harpies are definitely like the coolest out of all of them, to be fair. But I've got I've got a massive Medusa tattoo on my arm. Like I'm very <laughs> I'm very into Gorgons. I've also got a pomegranate as well, which I find quite funny. But yeah. um <laughs> yeah, it's it's any female-based mythology I find really interesting. So yeah, harpies and gorgons are definitely definitely like competing for number one, number two. Okay, so now I I remembered something that I wanted to mention and I totally forgot. So this Roman uh, version of the Medusa myth, she was essentially turned into a monster after rape. So it's a, the story is essentially that, as you say, Gorganization, or rather the person receiving the curse or becoming a monster is after trauma. Mm. Yeah. And and it's so prevalent today in the sense of, you know, the idea that if you go on TikTok nowadays and end up on mythology top, as I'll call it, I, I'm sure it's probably called that, but I'm mm-hmm. going to call it that. You know, a lot of women are talking about how Medusa is this, this symbol of uh, reclaiming the fact that you're a sexual assault victim or mm-hmm. survivor, should I say? And like for me, I'm I'm very much got my tattoo before the trend. I'm I, I'm very much believer of whatever you want to put on your body, whatever. But I think a lot of women nowadays are very much taking this symbol of Medusa and the Gorgon and saying, actually, I'm going to own this and put this on my body forever and own the fact that I'm a survivor. And I think it's amazing. Um, mm-hmm. and I think it's a it's a great way to commemorate a myth that actually is. Really Really, if you think about it, a little bit misogynistic and taking back that power from that that sexual assault with not only Medusa, but also the person who's getting this tattoo and taking it back and going, actually, no, I have the power to to take all of this back. I I, th- I think it's a really cool symbol. And I think, to be honest, the, the Gorgon symbol itself represents protection. It always has. If you go and look at any Greek architecture, Roman architecture, you'll see that Gorgon's heads are very prevalent within their structures because it did represent protection because of course she had stone eyes you're not going to look into them and yeah. you certainly wouldn't break into a house with one on on the threshold Versace is a great example they have Medusa as their their main logo but it is it is all to do with protection and I think that idea that people are putting this on their bodies now not only represents the taking back of what's happened to them and what happened in the myth but also it is a sign of that protection and it's that symbol of being like yeah don't don't screw with me like I'm I'm pretty solid <laughs> well, the usual traditional artistic depiction of Medusa, you know, since the Renaissance in sculptures and artwork was of per 
Perseus over her decapitated body holding her head up. Mm. Very, very patriarchal imagery. Yes. But now with the uh, Me Too movement, there was a comeback of this new sculpture that was created in 2008 of actually Medusa holding Perseus's head. Yes. And that's why why Medusa became, you know, such a symbol of the Me Too movement. Yeah, which I I think is completely fair enough. And it's a fantastic statue. It really is beautiful. Any modern Renaissance style uh, marble carvings like that are just amazing. But it it really does. It entirely flips the script and it is a gorgeous statue. Oh, yeah. And I see it as complete subversion of the traditional interpretation of this. Because if we look at the Roman version of this myth, she was turned into a monster via sex assault so masculinity toxic masculinity created the monster that is her and now the same men are off to kill her yeah (laughs) and display her corpse but now this is a total subversion of i conquered that which turned me into the monster that i am exactly exactly i think that's that's literally i couldn't add any more to that description it's Mm -hmm. that's exactly what it represents and i think that's so important to something like the me too and even the just generally the feminist movement i think it's so important to take back that that role and completely reverse it and be like actually no there is some power in in being the monster here and taking that all back and yeah i think that that statue is so important and gosh no wonder it's been linked to me too i think it's i think it is really powerful and taking especially if we look at Weinstein for example it's those those women who are coming forward completely taking back that power he held over them and decapitating his statue you know it's very much that no I've I've got the power now and I think that's oh, yeah. it's so powerful my my favorite monster from Greek mythology is one that you did not cover yet <laughs> oh go on <laughs> okay so it is the chimera oh yes I haven't covered it yet but it is on it's on my list <laughs> oh yeah and for the listeners I mean probably everybody knows what the chimera is it is a creature that that has the body and the head of a lion, and then from its back sprouts the head of a goat. It has the udders of a goat because it's female, and it has a snake for a tail. <laughs> it's a wild monster. <laughs> it's a very classical monster, and you know the term chimera we use now is an amalgamation of different things, a Frankenstein monstrosity. That's what chimera is used as now. But in the original Greek mythology, chimera is the daughter of Typhon and Echidna. And these two were the parents of most of the monsters we know and love, like <laughs> the Cerberus and the Hydra. Do you remember the Hydra? Is it also female? Um, I don't believe it's ever mentioned what sex it is. Okay. Um, but I, I imagine it's most likely female, to be completely honest, in the, in the sense that most of the monsters that come out of these two are, if they are gendered, of course. But I'd most, I'm going to say now on this podcast, podcast that I imagine the Hydra probably was. (laughs) Oh yeah, because I I find it very interesting that, well, Cerberus, I don't know if it's male or female, but I think (laughs) Hydra is and and Chimera is most definitely. I don't know if Scylla and Charybdis were also from this pair. I believe so, yes. I did cover them, yeah. It's very interesting how all of these monsters that sprouted from a Typhon and Echidna are multi-headed female monsters. Yeah. And you know how Typhon is depicted as having the lower body like a, a squid, yeah. tentacle legs. So it's like he is being completely reversed. Instead of multiple legs, he has multiple heads. <laughs> well, that's it. And, and Echidna is that that weird uh, kind of mesaline, half-snake idea as well. Very, very Starbucks 
label <laughs> with her with her <laughs> spread out fins. So she's uh, both of them have very odd legs, <laughs> and it's it's odd that actually most of their offspring have very strange heads rather than leg wise. <laughs> I think it's a very interesting thing that they chose for the myth uh, for Chimera to be a female and even say that it has udders. So you definitely know the gender of this monstrosity. Mm. Uh, why I like the Chimera, I mean, apart from being an amalgamated uh, abomination, that, that's the type of monster that I love. <laughs> it is also very animalistic, you know, it's not like the Gorgons or the Harpies. It does not display human-like intelligence or personification. It's the personification of a weird animal. Yeah. And uh, how the myth goes is that Bellerophon was sent by the king of Lycia to slay this beast, but the king actually thought, oh, this beast will actually kill Bellerophon. And the plan didn't go <laughs> quite as he wanted. <laughs> but Bellerophon was the, the hero who, who rode Pegasus. And yes. this is the story that features Pegasus because he rode Pegasus in order to kill the Chimera. The reason he was sent to kill the Chimera is because it was killing livestock. I mean, it's it's an animal. What what do you expect? <laughs> <laughs> yep, exactly. And it's an animal with a wild cat's head. I, I don't know what it, they expected there oh, yeah. at all. And, and it also breathes fire. Now, there are some kind of mountains over there in Lycia that emit methane that gets ignited, and there are these fireballs that come out of the rocks. So that may have sparked the myth of the chimera. Yeah, makes makes sense. I mean, that's, that's always been the explanation for dragons as well. It's very much it's that they can't breathe fire. They breathe some kind of ignitant and gas mm -hmm. that creates that fire effect. It's not like they have like this uh, reserve uh, furnace in their chests, <laughs> which I think uh, a lot of people do think they have. But no, it's very much a they have a an ignitant and a gas that just come together and make that and they have this fire resistant mouth another reason i find the chimera myth so interesting is because of this parallel between chimera and pegasus because we know now that pegasus was birthed out of the decapitated head of medusa and yeah. uh, the, the chimera was birthed by the mother and father of most of the monsters in these stories so i find it kind of weird that the spawn of medusa is used by the hero to slay the spawn of echidna and typhon but regardless of that, Bellerophon kills the Chimera uh, with a spear because he punctures the throat of this creature with the spearhead and the metal of the spearhead melts because it's a fire breather and chokes it to death. So this, as you may realize, motif has been used in Christianity with uh, Saint George killing the dragon <laughs> with a spear. Yeah. Yep, nice and easy. <laughs> and I always saw the myth of Saint George killing the dragon because the dragon is always, you know, depicted as some kind of small creature that just kills livestock. It's not that significant. I always saw it like humanity's rule over Mother Nature. You know, like yeah. heck yeah, he killed that poor animal that was just being an animal and surviving. I can see that uh, motif starting with the Greek myth of the chimera. And though the Greeks and the Christians think, you know, the hero is is the most important guy there and he did a good job, I see that as kind of fucked up. Kind of yeah. saying, you know, we, we have the right to to rule over Mother Nature and especially making the, the monster female, you know. It, yeah. A lot of these negative connotations. 
expectations there. And especially, I just, and again, this is what we talked about in the, the Medusa part, but it's the idea that man thinks that they own this animal, right? It's mm-hmm. like, as you said, they mostly kill livestock. And it's the idea that actually this hero would be sent after this monster that was just being an animal and was eating another animal. Yeah. And, but it's that idea that, well, I'm a farmer and I owned that animal. Therefore, yeah, we have to kill this beast. When actually, you know, that animal doesn't belong to you. It's just being an animal, <laughs> um, <laughs> as is the monster. And it's that idea of this this completely autonomous, sentient being like animals or like even Medusa in this sense, right, is considered owned by its upper. So we've got the animals here being owned by this farmer and Medusa being owned by Athena, apparently. Mm-hmm. And then someone else coming along and going, oh, actually, this isn't right. Like, this doesn't work. And the idea that we can just kind of take those, but actually no one owns any of these things. And it's, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Well, yeah, we, we personify the mundane animal as a monster to kind of fill our own ego. Yeah. Like, it's one thing you're going out killing, let's say, a beast who's killing livestock. Okay. But then you need to make a whole myth about that. Like, yeah, I slayed this beast, <laughs> you know, this monstrosity that nobody else could slay. I always saw the St. George story as that. As going on to slay Medusa is something because it's an entire intelligent humanoid being you know yeah uh that that can totally fuck you up but this is just an animal so instead of going on slaying something that is an equal match to you you just go kill an animal and then make a whole story of it yeah yeah and it's that idea of sentience isn't it it's that idea of emotional intelligence or intelligence as a thing it's this creature can't actually make informed decisions like people can Mm -hmm. they're just trying to eat and it just yeah it's it's never made any sense to me even with something like the chupacabra in puerto rico it's said to be this goat sucking weird lizard like monster but it's very much like it's probably just a hyena (laughs) trying to eat something and it's it's that idea that you have to it's our weird human ego that kind of has to put this whole well oh it was this massive 50 foot monster that drains blood and it has wings and it's uh ridiculously strong and it can see in the in the dark and all of this stuff when actually it's it's just it's just a hyena <laughs> oh yeah but but nobody uh, will think you're cool if you go and slay a, a, a mangy starving dog yeah exactly <laughs> exactly and i mean that's what i i always try to do on the podcast whenever i cover a monster like that is like try and debunk it and be like well realistically it's most of the time it's going to be misidentification and it will be just a normal thing <laughs> it will be just like a, a dog <laughs> And I just, I don't understand the human deduction behind all of that and being like, as you said, it's that whole ego thing of being like, well, I don't want people to know I just killed a fly. I'm going to say it was Mothman, you know? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I wanted to go now into something else. Uh, You told me off air that you're willing to share this. How (laughs) Greek mythology kind of seeped and rooted itself so deep into your soul that now it is essentially your belief system. Yes, absolutely. So you you told me that you are, is it called Hellenistic pagan? Yes, or Hellenic pagan. Hellenic pagan. So can you uh, (laughs) tell us what that is? And this is something that I am also not too uh, aware of, so... I'm learning as well. (laughs) 
Yeah, so it's 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 basically just you know pagan in itself is an umbrella term, right? So it's it's very much the worship of nature, and that's always something I've been really interested in. But there are very different branches as to which kind of pagan you want to be. Obviously, right now with witch talk kind of exploding on TikTok and stuff like that, the idea of Wicca has gone kind of crazy, and there's always been paths like Satanism, which has always been very much linked to paganism and demonized because of that. But actually, underneath this umbrella term does also cover all of the ancient um, religions that come from these old mythologies. So I very much identify with the Hellenic path um, as I grew up on those Greek stories. But there are Roman paths, there are Norse, there are Aztec, there are Egyptian. Um, so it's it's all really, you know, it's very much open to interpretation. And that's why I love, I love paganism as a thing. And me and you both said off air, it's it's very much interpreting, interpreting religion in your own kind of way it's very free and yeah it allows a lot of fluidity in your belief yeah, system yeah and no restrictions and i just i find that really welcoming i mean even something like the temple of satanism right in america and i think it's it's based other where other places but i think it's mostly rooted in the states actually if you read their manifesto it's so liberating it's it's so free it's very much like make your own decisions don't hurt people you know it's it's very much like very free and with Hellenism within paganism, it's very much you do kind of the normal, I'm going to say normal in quotes, pagan things and you worship nature and you appreciate what's all around you without taking man-made stuff and, you know, anything from these huge religions that dominate our species. And you just kind of interpret them the way that you feel is best and appreciate it for the way it is. Whilst with the Hellenistic path, I very much see, for me, my actual deities are those 12 pantheon gods and i kind of see the other ones the other ones do obviously trickle in so we talked about the muses off air and Mm -hmm. definitely see how those fit into where i would potentially worship and it's very much for me it's a sense of comfort and i also feel like there is so much documentation about the mythologies really in any class that i feel like i know them better and as someone who worships them i feel like i can open up and trust them because i know what they're about and who they are as people and so my my main deity is very much uh is artemis the goddess of the moon and very much into her (laughs) if that makes sense Um, It does make sense because of the whole femininity aspect and the moon has in all cultures been linked, perceived as a symbol of the feminine. Yeah, and it's that idea as well that the moon has so much control over the way our planet works. Mm -hmm. And and that's, the again, the joy of paganism. Still, it's a very subtle influence on the way the world works compared to the sun, Mm. which is very violent and in your face. That's why it was always a masculine symbol. Exactly, exactly. And it's that idea as well with paganism that actually I can link the fact we have so much research as humans we have so much science behind how our world works and how the planets work and everything and actually I can still say oh well I get how you know the moon and tides work and all stuff like that due to just planetary knowledge but I can also still worship Artemis and not feel like I'm contradicting myself it's 
because it's so open. And I really love that. But another one I I love sometimes dabbling with Persephone and Hades. That's really interesting. And just being able to, it's very much to do with being thankful for what you have and asking for assistance if you need it. Very much like a traditional religion would be, I suppose. Okay, so when you're going into that, is there a ritualistic aspect that you actually practice? Not specifically. I kind of operate the same way a kind of Wicca would. Um, mm-hmm. or a Wiccan, sorry. So I have I have an altar set up that is kind of like baseline. It's very generic. Like I have general pagan symbols and stuff like that. I have a statue of Gaia. I, I really like that. <laughs> I have to send you a picture because it is beautiful. But yeah, I have all of that set up. And then if I want to do something specifically for a god, I'll find stuff that relates to them. So for example, if I'm if I'm talking to Calliope, the goddess of uh, the main goddess of the muses, so inspiration and writing and poetry, which I really love. And I, I'm very much, my background is all in playwriting. So I try to get back into that and I find inspiration that way. So I'll ask her for inspiration. So I'll adorn my altar with stuff that would appease her so stuff like I'll put a play script that I wrote up or I'll put white candles symbolizing that creativity in that blank page and it's it's all very very malleable um as to who who and what and when you can worship whoever you fancy really at the time and who can who you feel like would represent what you're asking for and what you're kind of looking for support in we know that the pantheon of greek gods is very very tricksterish i mean every myth is somebody do something they shouldn't then zoo gets angry and and does some wacky absurd thing to <laughs> to punish them so yep. uh, do you ever have any kind of tricksterish moments where you feel like something absurd is happening to you and unexpected as an influence of these deities <laughs> i think sometimes i think it's uh, again it's all about that respect thing right so zeus is very very passionate about making sure that you're a great host and you're really respectful when you have people in your home so i i go above and beyond to be like a very good host. If you ever come to my house, I'm like, I'm mm-hmm. unbelievably good at hosting, I must say. I'll, I'll say it to myself. I literally had a really terrible day the other day. I bought someone a wedding present, which was in a frame. As soon as I walked out of my house, it started raining and the cardboard got soaked. Then I dropped it and the frame shattered. My train went to the wrong platform and so I missed it. I ended up being two hours late for work. It was a horrendous day. <laughs> Did you do something that maybe disrespected the gods? Oh, honestly, I, I the whole time I was like, I've done something. I've really done something. A lot of the time you're like, oh, it's karma or something to do with that. But sometimes I'm like, oh, I've, I might have done something here that might have screwed someone over or I've disrespected something. And like the only thing I could think of was like previously I'd put my cats in the car for a little bit whilst I had a house inspection and they were really upset with me. Like they were really upset. Hmm. And I, and I, I was upset. They were upset. So I was upset. And um, I was like, oh, this is punishment for that. I shouldn't have done that. Like, it's all about respecting animals. And I've completely disregarded that. Okay. So in the paranormal field, there is trickster theory. And in the paranormal, it's not essentially like being punished by a trickster, but rather the trickster is there to insert novelty into a stagnating society. So it is essentially rattling the cage in order to spark new things. So mm. sometimes you, you do not need to interpret that as oh did i do something wrong and am i being punished but rather your cage is being rattled so you may be kind of shifted to another course (laughs) yeah yeah it's a test of strength isn't it like somewhere down the line it's a test of like oh can you get through this 
And also I ended up the frame, the picture that I, I got for my friends for their wedding present. I, I work with one of them and I turned up and I presented it to him and I was like, I'm so sorry. The, the frame is shattered. Like I'm so gutted. It's been rained on. And he was like, I absolutely love this. And I've actually got a really nice frame at home that I've been wanting to use. And I was like, this, this is, this is the pure good karma that's come out of this bad yeah. karma. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's like, this, this has actually set us up on a much better path than maybe I had planned. It all, you know, as they say, it comes around, doesn't it? It it just ends up being positive in the end. And even if it doesn't, you end up probably learning something out of it. So I'm very much up for that that karma kind of thought as well as the gods' influences. Uh, my first thought is usually I'm just really unlucky and then <laughs> I end up really thinking about it and I'm like, oh, I've done something here. But also like a- as somebody who also works a very corporate job, you kind of stagnate in your life and then you sometimes need your cage to be rattled with these absurd situations where you learn something new that you would not otherwise learn within the machine as, you know, a cog of the corporate system. <laughs> oh, definitely. Def- it, it certainly makes life more interesting. And I th- and I th- that's it. I think we're all, be it corporate or not, just I love that little bit of excitement and complete unknown adventure really like if I end up accidentally getting on the wrong train my immediate reaction is never oh well I've got on the wrong train I'm, I absolutely hate myself I'm an absolute idiot I'm like well I could end up somewhere that's really nice and I really enjoy myself there mm-hmm. I, I'm very much one of those people I try and take positives out of everything and I, I try and imagine that as not only luck but also just it's very much keeping that positive attitude as well I think that's really important I'm thinking now, like, why are people drawn to Greek mythology, especially since the Victorian era or since the Renaissance? Um, and it still prevails today in pop culture. And now we're talking about this whole concept of uh, Hellenism still being practiced today. I feel this is my personal feeling about of Greek mythology, but it kind of conveys a sense of nostalgia to a time when you didn't even exist. Yeah. To, to a time when uh, life was much simpler, when somebody's uh, most you know horrible problem in their life was they lost a sheep or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's like a it's like a throwback to easier times. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Where- we didn't have technology and uh, no, you know, politics. no technology, no, no politics. I mean, probably Greek politics were very complex and I'm just pulling stuff out of my ass because I'm ignorant. <laughs> oh, they were geniuses. I mean, they practically invented politics, right? Yeah, but yeah. like at the end of the day, we all know what Nero did and we know how horrendous some of these emperors were who were politicians. It was very much sometimes you solved a problem by killing someone. And as much as I'd love to solve the problem of the Tories in the UK with that. I get why it's not as prevalent within our societies now, and I'm sure it's not within Greece either, currently. <laughs> <laughs> Greek mythology conveys the sense of a life simpler in the way that life is much more fluid, you know? There are many different ways to solve a problem, and it's not like today's rapid, modern uh, lifestyle where you need to have a schedule and work a day job and do this and do that and blah, blah, blah. It's more like your whole life is herding sheep. (laughs) And (laughs) that's your only concern in life. Yeah, exactly. But I also think it's, especially with Greek mythology, I think it's quite easy, especially for Western audience to kind of wrap their head around. We have so many interpretations but not only from modern times, you know, we have Ovid, we have Homer, we have Euripides making plays and stories about these myths that they would have heard by ear or like even maybe been like 
I'm going to say this in bunny ears, but witnessed. They've made these immortal, right? So mm-hmm. like even like the story of Medea is so prevalent within Greek mythology, but also as someone who's studied theatre their entire life, I've played Medea about three times because the, the play by Euripides is so popular. And it's it's all written in practically ancient Greek. You have to it's almost Shakespearean language, but mm-hmm. it's held up so well in the modern the modern era. And I, I think that makes it so accessible to especially a Western audience. And a lot of people across Europe and across the US do generally find it quite easy to pick up. Whereas, you know, something like the Aztecs, it's complicated because um it's a lot of language that maybe Latin speaking, so English, French, whatever, we maybe don't pick up quite as easily like Quetzalcoatl is in itself a horrible word to say in English they they were the master (laughs) of mathematicians exactly and and that's it I think I think it's it's generally it's easy but it's also interesting enough to keep people kind of wrapped within that and there's enough interpretations for people to make new interpretations of it i i'm I'm thinking now so the way i am feeling about greek mythology like uh, nostalgia towards a simpler time that i never lived in my lifetime yeah probably that's how the ancient greeks perceived the greek mythology because we're talking about greek mythology we're not talking about greek history here yeah so they also lived in very complex societies with uh, so many different problems and they were probably drawn to this mythology because it was escapist fantasy (laughs) yeah and comforting right like hearing like grim tales like i find those quite comforting like listening to fairy tales and being like oh this is just like nice and chill but it's something that happens in you know very much in my peripheral in in europe in terms of in a fairy tale sense i can kind of relate to it because it's set in germany or whatever but it didn't actually happen it's just kind Mm -hmm. of a comforting little uh cautionary tale and that's very much what I would summarize all mythology stories as. They're all cautionary tales. Maybe don't do this and then this won't happen to you. And I think that's comforting for people, but it's also like when, you know, when you watch a car crash and then you drive past and you just really want to look at it, it's like that desire to kind of watch the disaster. And that's why a lot of people like true crime, right? It's that observance of something really terrible, but it's not happening to you, but you can't help but look at it. And I think mythology kind of has that same aspect of it's really interesting, but it's probably not great (laughs) to look at from a psychological perspective. It's because the mythology was formed from the psyche of the people who formed it. So it is a mirror reflection to ourselves. And as I said, our shadow, even if you created with the intention of it's being some kind of fun escapist fantasy, it is still a product of the things that you are not acknowledging about yourself or your society. So it is uh, uh, like those Rorschach ink blotches, you know, it can be used for (laughs) psychoanalysis of a society yeah exactly it is as you said it's a mirror being held up to society yeah and like even if we look at something that's like so inspired by the greeks the greeks basically invented theater modern theater as it is today Mm -hmm. and theater is always described as being that reflective mirror to show back at the audience and be like hey how like how do you feel about this topic that we talked about and i feel like mythology and even stuff like entertainment in any aspect is very much always that that reflection of you know is this okay like what do you think about this because we don't just pull the perception of Medusa and, you know, women in these ancient civilizations out of our asses. 
Mm-hmm. They come from somewhere. Oh yeah, I think it is very unintentional. Nobody goes out to intentionally create this myth, these myths as mm. uh, social commentary, but rather it is a huge Freudian slip. Yeah, it is. It's exactly that. For the end of the episode, like we mentioned at the start, <laughs> we're going to talk about video games. <laughs> yes. My own idea for this episode was to completely talk about video games, but th- this was much more interesting what, what we made here. <laughs> as for video games, so how are we conveying these Greek myths today via video games and how maybe does the mythology differ in contemporary, let's say, gaming and role-play gaming like Dungeons & Dragons compared to the original source material? I think with something like D&D, it's really pure. It's like Mm -hmm. practically, if you look at the monsters that come out of uh, mythology that go into D&D, they are basically identical. I love D&D for that. Like, I really love D&D for that. Oh, and D&D, like when it was first being being created the creators did not care about you know character licensing and whatever that's why they pulled from mythology because nobody yeah. owns the rights so <laughs> they could just copy and paste all the monsters as is yeah it's it's easy and, and as well as that most of them are so good like the monsters that you can pull out of most mythologies especially like easy western ones there's so much like grit to them which is why i've ended up doing the podcast in the first place it's there's so much info there's so much meat in there that actually they don't have to do much work in order to make it a fully fledged character or monster within their within their mythos they just as you said just need to copy and paste <laughs> it's it's really cool to be able to do that and it's not something that they invented like we've been copying and pasting greek mythology for a very long time not just yeah. the archetypes and the characters but also the words greek mythology is very big on names and we yes. use let's say medusa in in uh, marvel comics medusa is the queen of the inhumans in yes. biology we refer to medusa as jellyfish and stuff like that you know we constantly use the same words o- over and over because yeah. the the names themselves carry a message yeah they resonate within us don't they and it's like what they stand for but it can sometimes be like what they look like i mean medusa in the marvel comics she has that amazing hair right and mm-hmm. that's her power and it makes sense to call her medusa alongside the monster that we know which is all about her snake hair medusa is one of my faves because she's a redhead and that immediately makes her more important <laughs> to me <laughs> no i think i think the way that we we take greek mythology into video games is really important i think t- interpretation is really important because sometimes you can just kind of run with it and completely adapt it to something completely new. I mean, even in films, right? We've got like Percy Jackson, mm-hmm. completely modernized Greek mythology and has made it something a little bit different, but it's still, the core is still there. Oh yeah, it's like the American Gods version of Greek mythology for exactly. teens and young adults. Yeah, exactly. And even if you look at like newer games like um, Odyssey, Assassin's Creed, mm-hmm. it's practically identical. It's taken straight off of a page of Ovid. You know, it's it's beautiful. It's It's got the language element. It's got all the interpretations that you could possibly imagine just merged into one and actually not really baked down into anything childlike or PC almost. You know, they're, they're a very, if you look at the interpretation of Hades in Assassin's Creed Odyssey. He's he's very aggressive, and it's it definitely appeals to the idea that Hades is this bad guy. Which, of course, all mythology nerds know he's probably not, but all Disney people will know that. Of course, we're gonna we're gonna demonize <laughs> Hades. Um, but even if we look at something like Hades the video game, which is one of my absolute favorites. Oh my god, Hades is an incredible game. And uh, j- just for context, so I did not play Hades, but I think it's uh, kind of Diablo clone. Yeah, it's a roguelike, very similar to Diablo. Oh, it's a roguelike. 
like okay yeah so in terms of like the way it looks it looks quite similar to diablo but yeah roguelike you you die and you come back and you go again um and but it's get- randomly generated like all roguelikes yes okay yep yep and you get Zagreus, who's the son of Hades and Persephone, um, and you you run about through all of the different levels of the Greek underworld. So you go through uh, Asphodel, Tartarus, Elysium, all of that kind of stuff. And it's a beautiful game. I really recommend it. The soundtrack to any of their games are just incredible. Can't remember the company name for the life of me. Uh, you you are a v- huge World of Warcraft nerd as well. <laughs> yes, I am indeed. How how do you feel about the way they treat the greek monsters i think quite respectfully to be completely honest mm-hmm. um they reuse them a lot of the time i mean my my partner used to work for activision blizzard so i i have a quite a nice little insight to uh how they design stuff like that i really like how they use these monsters and kind of adapt them i mean there's a great uh zone i can't remember what uh continent it's in 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 wow but there's a great zone where it's just hydras it's just hydras everywhere um and they've all got like specific names and they're all like based off of these greek heroes and greek monsters there's an actual boss that's a hydra and it's called uh, megara which i think is really ironic and funny but uh yeah i think i think the way wow does it is really fun and of course they don't dominate their entire maps with mythology but they have a whole i think it's like three zones in wrath the lich king that are all norse mythology based mm-hmm. and and you can actually follow like in a specific bit in the Legion expansion, you can follow the whole story of Odin. Odin yeah. <laughs> um, you can follow his whole story through his his adventures as Harvey, and you get to interact with Hugin and Moonin and all of the different pa- uh, pantheon of Norse gods within WoW. And I think the way that it does it so respectfully, it barely renames them, so you kind of know who you're talking to. But they they write it really respectfully, and I think I think that's really important. And even something I know you love Age of Mythology. Uh, yeah, and I my favorite mythological game is titan quest actually oh nice i know you love uh, diablo but i was always afraid of diablo i don't like <laughs> horror you know that's fair it is gory and it to, is gory. to be fair like i played one and two i did not play three i know three is much less gory but one <laughs> and two are terrifying so yeah. <laughs> uh, titan quest is like diablo but it's not always nighttime <laughs> <laughs> and it's the world of ancient mythology. So, you know, beautiful landscapes and stuff like that. And it, it is a fantastic game. Yeah. And again, it's that it's that idea that it's presented really respectfully and actually quite accurately as well. I mean, God of War is another great example of how these mythologies are taken and put into these amazing contexts of video games and making it still make sense. And true to the myths as well. I mean, an- another one of my favourites is, um, I've only just started playing it, but it's Immortal Phoenix Rising. Uh, mm-hmm. It came out in 2020 and I think it's a Ubisoft game. But um, that one's really good. It follows, again, it follows the path of this like little greek hero and she interacts with all of the gods and has like different quests for them they all have all of the gods have like these amazing personalities based on their well based on their perceived powers within greek mythology and it's just so fun and because it's this one is really accessible to kids as well it's really nice to kind of introduce that into a new generation i mean keep the new the new generations into these old mythologies that actually mean so much to us as societies and we built our societies around and for the end, I want to ask you, and this is something I wondered always, we don't see a lot of Greek mythology being conveyed or mythology in general in movies, in TV, in other media 
as mm. much as in video games. Yeah. And, you know, the whole fantasy and RPG subgenre is exclusively video games nowadays. So <laughs> why do you think mythology has such a huge presence in video games? Is it because the mythology is based on the, the hero's journey and, you know, the old story of Heracles and his labors, which kind of can be perceived as quests, you know, <laughs> a story yeah. arc. So. Uh, <laughs> Is the Greek mythology itself inherently already packed with these gaming motifs? I definitely think so. I think, I mean, the the Heracles example is a perfect example of a great quest line. And even like, as I said, like the WoW quest lines that they have with Odin and Harvey are really nice and streamlined. They make sense. There are there are very easy villains. There are very easy monsters. Uh, there are lesser monsters that you can make more of. So you can make it like a kill 50 of these things uh, kind of quest. But I also mm-hmm. think there's, especially with RPGs and fantasy-based, Based, um, multiplayer games it's something that really that people can get into the quest of and really take you know read it you know and I- I'm guilty as anyone of I- I've played WoW for years I've played it since I think 2011 now something like that I'll put my hands up and say I do not read the quest text anymore <laughs> but when I when I was I, I stopped reading it like after a few days <laughs> See, I'm terrible and I did like I, I used to play with my my ex-boyfriend back when I was like 15 and uh I I used to sit and read all of the quest texts and he'd be like can we just move on and I'm like no 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 I've, I've just got to finish this because I don't get the context. But it still conveys uh, Greek mythology properly. Like I never could read that text because it's full of these names that mean nothing to me and that's how <laughs> yeah. I perceive Greek mythology if I want to sit down and and read it. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's the same with something as like um I find it really hard to read Game of Thrones I found Game of Thrones really difficult because of that exact problem like too many names I can't picture anyone and you just kind of throw in stuff at me that I don't understand mm-hmm. and I very much like the way that George R. R. Martin writes is very mythology based it's it's very factual there's a whole load of names and there's a whole load of places it's so well thought out but it does come across as very overwhelming to the reader mm-hmm. and I only found that actually I could I could only read the Game of Thrones books after I watched at least two seasons of the show so that I could put a face to the name that I was thinking of because otherwise I was completely lost. Oh yeah. Completely I, I think it's conveyed properly in games because in the game, oh, this person, let me go search for them. Quest marker yes. there. Ah, so that's this guy. Okay. Yeah. And sometimes they accompany you and sometimes like they'll talk to you like on the run to the quest or something, or, or they'll be with you for like six quests and you'll be like, oh, I've, I've got to know this person. Like I, I have some kind of kindred mm-hmm. a feeling towards him. Even though they started off as kind of a rehashed skin of uh, the same race <laughs> yeah. over and over again. Exactly, exactly. So I, I definitely think video games do portray it. I just think they have an easier job of portraying it because they have that that natural questing element and they have that idea of like reoccurring stuff whilst TV movies, people can get really confused with names and especially oh, yeah. like, as I said, in the fantasy genre, it just makes it really tricky when you have this, like Lord of the Rings is a great example, right? You have this amazing, well thought out world and Tolkien is a nightmare anyway with description. Oh yeah, it, it takes you two pages to read the description of a grain of sand i know it's horrendous it and like i love i love lord of the rings and i love the universe i have never read the book i've never read them because i just don't want to (laughs) 
<laughs> I've read The Hobbit like a million times, but it's for kids. It makes yeah. sense. I cannot read Lord of the Rings and my parents struggled with it. And so I've never, I've never bothered. But I absolutely love that universe. But even watching Rings of Power now and after what six films we have on Lord of the Rings and all of the books and all of the exterior content that we have to Tolkien's work, I still struggle with names and places. I'm still like, oh, where is that? That's, oh, it's near, Mo- it's, it's near Mordor. Like, okay, I, I kind of get it. It's still that idea that I-, I feel like it's easier to see it all at your own pace when video games really do prepare you for that. Like if they say go to this place outside of Mordor, you can mm-hmm. open a map and stare and study the map. Whilst oh, yeah. when you're watching a movie, you can't do that. Or, or you can do what I always do. Like, I don't feel like doing that. I'm going to go hunt down these wolves. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Exactly. And just be like, I'm just going to like, I, I'm exactly the same. I'll go and explore the map in a video game more than do the quest. I, I love exploring maps and like understanding where I am. But yeah, I I do exactly the same. I'll do all the side quests before I do the uh, the main one. I'm doing a, I'm playing Kingdoms of Amalur, uh, the re-reckoning at the moment. Oh, okay. <laughs> Because I absolutely love that game. I've always loved that game. And I haven't played the remaster. It's not worth it, by the way, just as a heads mm-hmm. up. Might as well just play the original. Oh, yeah. <laughs> My uh, most favorite game is Elder Scrolls 4 Oblivion. Not Skyrim. They, uh, yeah. But I always played it like with 50 gigabytes of mods until the game <laughs> cannot even <laughs> start up anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the same with WoW. I'm yeah. exactly the same with WoW. But like even playing Amalur now, it's very quest heavy and there are factions and you can like join the Fae Court and you can join the Southern Fae Court and you can join like the, the Bounty Hunters and you can do all of their separate quests. Oh, so so that's like the Seelie and Unseelie Court and uh, yes. Fae Okay. Yeah, it's it's all Celtic mythology. The mm-hmm. Tuatha Duan are the main enemies in that game and it's, it's so gorgeous just like highly recommend it it's one of my favorite games of all time i I find it very exciting that a video game is actually portraying celtic folklore for once and properly portraying it yeah and i'm pretty sure it's an american studio that's done it it's it's made i think it was originally done by ea um but it's not them yeah i know (laughs) but so actually you could only find it on origin for a really long time and i was like absolutely not but um no they've they finally put it on steam uh and released the shackles on the game so uh can't remember who makes it but i'm pretty sure it's an american studio and for an american studio to be covering you know a celtic subject irish welsh english and scottish is so refreshing it's like oh okay well i'm I'm glad we managed to get some of our mythology out there somewhere oh yeah and (laughs) celtic Celtic is one that's so looked over as well. It's it's really refreshing to get it get it out in the open. I think The Witcher helped a lot with that because <gasps> yeah. it, it conveyed Slavic mythology and it was a badass game and a series. The world was like, hey, these Polish dudes conveyed <laughs> Slavic mythology. Maybe we should do that with other mythologies. Absolutely. And I mean, that's uh, The Witcher is a fantastic example. Like their bestiary in in game is so well done. I mean, I did um, I did the Poirinek and the um, Changeling. I think it was like my fifth episode on the podcast Mm -hmm. and so much of that information actually came from cd project red's bestiary wikipedia it was so so full of information and actually with like slavic mythology and with celtic it's really quite hard sometimes to find information on these monsters they 
it's it's not like oh yeah it, it was buried by christianization i know yeah. like here we we used to be old slavs we had a whole pantheon of ours and nobody here now knows that because we were christianized in the seventh century exactly. and you know systematically it was all erased exactly and it's it's such a shame and it's it's the same with um with the uk it's that celtic stuff has all been buried by roman stuff and no wonder it's so easy for us to get a hold of roman greek mythology was because we were completely dominated by them it makes yeah. complete sense and our our identities realistically were erased by that uh, infiltration and it's fine digging out those sources and a lot of people now especially in like places like ireland and scotland are so interested in burying that like digging that back up and being like this is actually our our heritage these are the the gods that we worshipped back before we were invaded and i love that and i imagine it's the same for for slavic mythology with you guys oh, yeah. it's it's digging that back out in in polish culture it's not as prevalent here but in poland and in russia there is this movement called the rodovieri mm. they are essentially neo-pagans who are trying to revitalize the old slav pantheon i love that yeah that's amazing how it's it's just so lovely like it makes me like all warm and fuzzy inside it's rediscovering your cultures and like especially as europeans like especially with the way that america looks at us they very much are europe and it's like well there are 44 countries in europe <laughs> it's we all have our own mythologies like we've got the main two which are greek and roman within our continent but also we've got the slavic mythology and that even in itself is me generalizing there's like eight countries within slavic mythology it's it's crazy <laughs> how much we can break stuff down i think we are now seeing something that has never been recorded before in history it was always the motif of we need to preserve culture but what we are doing now is resurrecting dead culture mm, yeah and exactly. that, that's a whole episode for itself. So we're ending <laughs> this now because you told me you need to. Um, <laughs> yes, finish no worries. <laughs> so can, can you tell my listeners where they can find you, where they can listen to your podcast and engage with you further? They certainly can. Um, so you can find Myth Monsters on any streaming site. We just come under Myth Monsters, not Mythical Monsters. That is not me. You can find us on mythmonsters.go.uk, on any social media, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok. It's Myth Monsters Podcast. And I'm most accessible, uh, as Vuck as will tell you, on Twitter. <laughs> and that's under Myth Monsters Pod. Uh, I'm the most active on there if you ever have any questions or suggestions. But yeah, I'd, I'd absolutely love if you came and checked us out we are i mean this week we're covering the tanuki from japanese mythology oh. so that'd be a fun one <laughs> yeah yeah especially it's not sack oh my god i know it's literally like the biggest thing that it has about it i'm absolutely <laughs> horrified to have to say testicles over and over again oh, this man. week <laughs> As you know, I'm like, I'm very PC within my podcast. So I'm like, oh, I have to say testicles oh, another yeah. time. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having well, me. Well, thank you. I, I went into this, this without any expectations, plans. I did not know what we're going to talk about or do here. <laughs> and I am very satisfied. We had oh, such an too. amazing discussion here. Yeah, it was it was really awesome. I, honestly, thank you so much for having me. It's It's been an absolute joy. No problem. No problem. And I'll have Perfect. you anytime you want to come back. <laughs> oh, most definitely. I'll be I'll be back. And until next time, until Aaron decides to come back at, on the show, I will be linking everything in the episode description. And until next time, I guess. Bye bye, guys. Go go play a video game. <laughs>